Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. This episode is brought to you by Pipedrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. Pipedrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With Pipedrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today and get a special 60-day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to How I Built This Lab. I'm Guy Raz. So have you ever wondered how a drought in one part of the world could impact the cost of food at your grocery store or how extreme weather caused by climate change might change agriculture as we know it? Well, our global food markets are all incredibly connected and they require vast amounts of data to understand and analyze which is why Sarah Manker founded Grow Intelligence in 2014. Grow takes trillions of data points from a variety of sources and builds forecasts for thousands of unique agricultural products like chicken or wheat or corn or sunflower oil. Sarah's company helps clients like food suppliers and financial institutions navigate climate risk, understand supply models, predict the demand for crops, monitor conditions for farming around the world, and more. And as of this year, Grow has raised more than $125 million to support informed decision-making in global food markets. Sarah Maker grew up in Ethiopia, where she saw the tragic consequences of food insecurity firsthand. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was basically during what was known as sort of the Dirk regime um, in Ethiopia, and it was a communist regime. And so it was a pretty dark time in the country, uh, but everything was you know, run by the state and controlled by the state. So sugar, toilet paper, it was not even a rationing. With toilet paper, it wasn't even any rationing. It was an availability issue because most stuff was not imported. So it was all locally produced. Um, But, you know, fuel, uh, we couldn't drive on Sundays. (laughs) You walked on Sundays or you took the bus. Um, And so it was just a, it was a very, it was a very different time. It was a very dark time in sort of the country's history. Yeah. you know, when you're sort of growing up in a, in a world where it's not a world of abundance, it's a world of limited resources, like everything is limited, um, and it doesn't matter who you are, I think you just grow up with a sense of awareness of not taking anything for granted, if that makes sense. Like, mm. I don't know, I think it's impacted me a lot, especially as I like 
have gotten older and, you know, sort of experienced a lot in life, I think it, it grounds you, right? It reminds you of what basic necessities and basic needs are in this life and, and keeps you connected to those things. Um, you went to university in the U.S. I know you went to Mount Holyoke. Um, and after college, you decided to kind of enter the world of finance. You were you were at Morgan Stanley for a while, and you, you focused on commodities. Um, tell me wh- why you had an interest in that space. Yeah, I always say that, you know, I – fell into finance after college. I didn't, you know, you know, there are people who grow up and are like, I, I dreamt of going to Wall Street. I didn't even know what Wall Street was. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of friends were doing these finance internships and I didn't think I wanted to do that. I thought I actually wanted to do a PhD in economics. And, um, and then I just, you know, sort of fell into the role in the sense that I met a recruiter who convinced me to apply for a finance internship. I did that, um, and I realized that credit markets and credit default swaps and all these other sort of cool instruments were like the cool areas to work in. Like nobody wanted to work in commodities. Like it was always that division nobody understood. The reason I was attracted to it is that it was actually attached to some things that were so physical and necessary for life, you know, like oil markets, like things that still tied to like my academic interests, but also tied back to the real world in some way. Um, And so I think I just loved the idea of being part of a group that dealt with the physical world. While you were there, you spent, I think, um, eight years um, on Wall Street. You started to think about an idea that would eventually become this business, Grow Intelligence. Um, And I guess the idea really kind of began around 2008 during the financial crisis. What was going on and what led you to start to think about agricultural forecasting and what it would eventually become grow intelligence? It was the 08, 09 financial crisis, which those of us that were there at that time will never forget. Um, and I had a colleague who um, just thought the world was coming to an end in sort of a genuine way. Like he was worried and he was like, oh my gosh. And, and all I could think of was like, listen, like, honestly, if Morgan Stanley stock went to zero, which at that time felt like any of that was a possibility, like Lehman had gone under and everything else, like it would suck, but the world's not come to an end. You know, Mm -hmm. like I've seen what close to the end of the world looks like, which was sort of my upbringing and going back to the comment I made earlier, which is it keeps you grounded and it gives you perspective, right? And so his, his sort of way of hedging for that was buying as much gold as possible and, and lots of guns. And, um, and I one day said to him, like, what are you going to do? Like, trade a sack of potatoes for a bar of gold? Like, if you think the world's coming to an end, like, that just gold seems like the worst investment idea. Yeah. And um, and so it was actually that that led me to look at agricultural investing. Hmm. Coincidentally, was also a time, though, when land um, in places like Ethiopia, actually, and, and sub-Saharan Africa more broadly, there was this really big push by governments to um, – make arable land available for commercial farming purposes. And so I started looking at investing in agricultural land. I'm not a farmer by any means, but I thought, you know, it could be a great investment. And uh, and I by the time I went through the process of assessing what seemed like a good deal, it became clear that it was actually a near impossible deal to make the economics work. And it sort of like really baffled me that 
it was so interesting that every time I asked questions, I got more questions, or if I needed data, I got data that was like two years old, or, you know, I'd ask about crop insurance and there was no crop insurance market. Like all the things that seemed like basic questions that one would ask to sort of set something like this up, mm-hmm. the infrastructure for it sort of didn't exist. And and I just and I I just remember thinking, you know, gosh, like we're just not gonna solve these big food security challenges. At some point it became clear to me, we were like trying to fix a system we didn't even understand. And it was just, uh, I was just so curious about it all sort of eventually just led me to say that I was really good at my job and I actually really liked the people I worked with at Morgan Stanley, but I just had no passion for it. Huh. So, all right. So you, I guess you could decide to leave your job at Morgan Stanley, and we'll get to that in a moment. But but help me understand a little bit more about the the problems that you were starting to uncover. I mean, essentially, I guess you realize that there there just isn't enough data for investors and businesses and 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 governments to understand what might happen to the price of different commodities, right? Especially uh, in agriculture, and I guess that lack of information. Uh, can make problems like food insecurity even worse. Is that is that more or less what you started to realize? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when I was trading, I managed our natural gas options business. And if you think about sort of natural gas and 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 any commodity, like the thing that drives the price of that product is like how much supply is there, how much demand is it, and what's the clearing price that clears the supply and the demand. You know, hurricane season constantly disrupted production. So during hurricane season, you're using weather data and weather forecasts to sort of see the probability of a hurricane hitting some type of production. Or in the winter, how cold is it going to be? Because that drives how much heating demand there is. So, you know, all of those are pieces that sort of drive that the price of any commodity and, um, and, and agriculture is one of them. So grow just became this idea to, to do it for agriculture. And that didn't exist at the time. All right, so you decide to leave your job at Morgan Stanley to pursue this idea, and you founded uh, this company, Grow Intelligence, I think in, in 2014, right? Yeah, I ended up leaving Morgan Stanley in 2012. Hmm. So I spent two years after I quit to when I sort of decided on exactly what grow, what shape or form Grow was going to take. And so when I left in 2012, my explanation to my boss then, who I'm still very, very close to and actually was one of my very early investors, was that, listen, I love working with you guys, but this is not the place for me. I've fallen in love with this other problem and I need to move back to Africa and I want to do something that solves for sort of food security. And he was like, you've lost your mind. You've absolutely lost your mind. You like, please, like, don't, don't leave. Like, maybe take a sabbatical. And I said, no, I don't want to take a sabbatical. Um, and and he said, why not? And I said, well, if I take a sabbatical, then I will want to come back. Or you know, if something doesn't sort of fully work out, um, then I'll have a fallback plan. I don't want to have a fallback plan. Like, what's the worst that can happen to me? I lose my life savings, fine, I'll get another job. Like I just, for some reason, I just thought that the best way to do this was to truly just sort of move on. And then I sort of embarked on this journey for two years, um, from 2012 to 14, of just defining what the business was going to be. Um, let, let's t- let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you're trying to solve here. I mean, the, the main issue is food security and insecurity, right? Because 
we know, right, that, that um, the amount of food produced in, in the world is more than enough to feed people. In the U.S. alone, um, 40% of food is wasted, right? Um, so when we talk about this idea of food insecurity, what exactly does it mean if, if there is plenty of food available and, and there are still people who don't have access to it? Yeah, well, you you nailed it, which is food insecurity is about access and affordability. Um because it's it's you can have a lot of food, but if you can't afford it, that's also not helpful. And so what we have as a world in terms of a challenge is both an access and an affordability problem and it looks very different depending on what part of the world you're looking at, right? So if you're looking at food insecurity in sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia, it is an access issue um, in the sense that not even enough is produced locally. So there is a, a food insecurity that comes from the fact that domestic production is not sufficient to meet the local needs. And then on top of that, there is an affordability issue, which is when you import it, obviously food is, is more expensive. Um, and then if you look at food insecurity in a wealthy country like the U.S., it's very different, right? Like the U.S. Is, feeds most of the world, right? Not just produces enough for itself. Um, and um, But in the U.S., your challenge is affordability, and then, to your point, you have a, a massive food waste problem, which could be more food that could sort of go out to other parts of the world, right? So it's different in, in sort of different areas, but there's sort of yep. that combination. So is there enough availability? And then can you get access to it when you need it? We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, more from Sarah Menker, the founder of Grow Intelligence. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This Lab. As a business-to-business -business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus, 
every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com built. Masterclass.com built. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Welcome back to How I Built This Lab. I'm Guy Raz, and my guest is Sarah Manker, founder of Grow Intelligence. It's a company that's using artificial intelligence to create forecasts for global food supply, demand, and pricing. So, all right, so you launched Grow Intelligence in 2014, and now your clients include uh, food suppliers, um, uh, agricultural businesses, financial institutions. Um, how do you provide forecasting models for them? What what kind of data points do you provide? Yeah, so we, so taking a step back, what we did is you know, the company's gone through sort of a journey, right, since 2014. The first set of challenges we dealt with was, can we get enough data in our system? Like, what data is out there? Like, do we even know what's out there? It's sort of, you know, one of the things that made agriculture so much more complicated than sort of the work that we did on the energy markets is that agriculture is not a single product. You know, oil is oil, natural gas is natural gas. Agriculture is tens of thousands of different products. Every single one is sort of governed by a different set of biological rules that govern how it grows. Um, supply is super fragmented. It can be in a half acre farm or a hundred thousand acre farm, right? So yeah. our first challenge was saying, what data is even out there? And can we ingest it and come up with a, a technology that can take that data and standardize it and bring it in in any language in any format? So we shouldn't care if it's in PDF. We shouldn't care if it's images. We shouldn't care if it's in Mandarin or Portuguese or English. We should be able to take that, automatically translate it, and also standardize the format. So what that then gives you is too much data, right? So we get data from 50,000 sources around the world. Wow. Um, they come in all these different formats, languages, but data on its own is not knowledge, right? It's just data. And so our, our second challenge then became, how do you take that and how do you develop insights and how do you develop models that tell people um, something they didn't know. And that's when we started building predictive models. And again, there we started simple. We started with modeling and forecasting in markets that everybody understood. So corn in the U.S., soybeans in the U.S., like really big markets before you start to go to Russia or India or Africa, where the data challenges are even bigger. Yeah. So we essentially built this what we call our modeling frameworks. And so today we have 28 modeling frameworks in the system. So think of those as yield models, climate indices, food price indices, very broadly defined, but they're essentially 
um, a combination of our data science team and our domain experts, people who actually understand these problems, design these models as templates that can then scale through sort of machine learning AI. And so today, those 28 modeling frameworks actually develop 2 million unique models by Grow. Hmm. So everything from forecasting the... Um, the demand of pork in China to the supply of sugar in Brazil to the U.S., Africa, you name it. So what our clients want is for us to pick and choose these models to solve very specific problems for their business needs. So, mm. for example, if you're a seed company, you want to understand how profitable farmers are because you are selling all this product to the farmers. You need to know that they can pay for that product. And so that will use a combination of our yield models, what we call our planted area models, our demand models um, and price data and combine that and actually give them a forecast for farmer profitability for every state or every district in Brazil or in China or in Argentina, right? But those same models get used by traders to just trade Markets And those same models get used by governments to look at credit risk of farmers because ba governments oftentimes backstop loans. So, you know, you use these models differently and the same models get used slightly differently by a whole different set of constituents, which is what's been sort of cool and amazing about it. You know, um, right now there's a lot of talk about a coming grain crisis because um, because of the Russian-Ukraine conflict. And I think Ukraine provides like a significant amount of grain to particularly to countries in the developing world. Um, what, what does that mean for food security or insecurity, particularly in African countries and Asian countries that rely on, on countries like Ukraine for, for, for wheat? Yeah, so I you know, one of the one of the things that we've been emphasizing is that you know, the Russia-Ukraine war didn't start a food security crisis. It added fuel to an already like long-burning fire. And I think it's really really important to sort of highlight that because if the war went away tomorrow, the crisis we're in doesn't go away, right? And that's really important context to sort of provide. Really, since the start of 2020, we'd been undergoing some pretty deep structural changes in agricultural markets that were sort of setting the stage for massive, massive price increases across different commodities. And what happened was in 2020, China, which has typically never been an importer of, of um main core cereal grains. So China imports soybeans to feed its hogs and sort of pork production, but rice, wheat, corn, China's never been an importer of that stuff. In 2020, it turned into a structural importer of grains. Hmm. That means that the world's sort of largest economy went from being self-sufficient in some of these core grains to being insufficient. So that change happened irrespective of COVID and irrespective of a Russia-Ukraine war. Then you had COVID, which disrupted supply chains and drove up price changes. And they were not a simple shock that came and went when, you know, things sort of normalized in the world. They sort of persisted. So that started driving prices up. Yeah. Then you also are now having an unprecedented number of uh, supply-side shocks due to climate change around the world. So major producing regions, the U.S., Brazil, China, Australia, I mean, year after year for the last three years essentially have had one climate catastrophe or another that has heavily impacted production. 
And so you rarely, rarely actually have a confluence of supply and demand side shocks occurring. That was the backdrop of the start of the Russia-Ukraine war, mm. right? And so that when you had that sort of already happening, then what you end up with is a situation where now Russia and Ukraine over sort of the last 15 years had emerged as sort of the major growth areas of the world for agricultural production to fill sort of that demand gap that was coming from areas like sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, where economies were growing fast. They filled that. Right. So you just had this massive disruption to, in particular, wheat, um, corn to some extent, and then um, sunflower oil. Really, truly catastrophic because we're basically in year three of a crisis that existed despite this war. Yeah. And, and this is now weighing on sort of local economies more and more because how long can you actually withstand a persistent shock? Right. Because at some point, a shock supposed to come and go, not, not stay. Hmm. There was a, a speech that you gave to the UN uh, in May of 2022 where you you basically talked about some of the major challenges that are facing the global food system. And, and one of the things you mentioned was a lack of fertilizer. Why is there a shortage of fertilizer in the world right now? Oh, gosh. That is actually the biggest problem now. So you're touching on probably the the most terrifying challenge ahead of us for the next two years is fertilizer. So there are three types of fertilizer. Um, there are nitrogen-based fertilizers, which are basically require natural gas. Uh, there are potash, which is mined, and then mm -hmm. phosphate, which is mined. So let's start with the first, nitrogen-based fertilizers. It's dependent on natural gas. Well, Russia, natural gas into Europe, energy crisis, right? It's all linked to the energy crisis. Um, and 70 to 90% of the cost of producing nitrogen-based fertilizer is the cost of natural gas. So when right. the cost of natural gas quadruples, guess what happens to the price of fertilizer? Mm. So you basically have a massive sort of spike in fertilizer prices. But what you've also had is a lot of capacity being shut down in Europe as a result. So a lot of the producers just can't afford it. So that sort of cascaded, though, into challenges in places like sub-Saharan Africa, where people just already use little fertilizer to using none. Now, going into sort of 2023, you have a major, major problem ahead of us because now you have an affordability and potentially an availability problem mm. conflating the two. And we can model out what that means to global food production. And we just finished rerunning a new analysis essentially as of November 1st. Um, and what we see now is that basically just the nitrogen problem alone is going to lead to a reduction of 216 trillion calories around the world. And that's just simply due to the fact that using less fertilizer is going to lead to a reduction in yield. Yeah. So that is something that is a massive, massive sort of looming 2023, 2024 problem that's even potentially bigger than it was before. So if you can forecast this now, knowing what's happening with, with fertilizer production, what effectively could your data lead to? I mean, could it, could it, is it designed in, in, in theory to prompt governments to take action to subsidize fertilizer to i mean literally you know to to ship fertilizer to countries that can't afford it um it's everything from 
central banks around the world, looking at what that effect is going to mean to sort of their national balance sheets, because some of these are countries that are actually typically exporters. So when you have exports go down, that means that you have a balance of payments issue that you need to manage. So you can plan in advance for like, how do I mitigate this? Like, do you pre-purchase in the markets? Like, how do you plan for this so that it's not absolute catastrophe while it happens? We're telling you this that as, you know, you're going into sort of 2023. It's being used by the likes of the World Food Program for emergency response. Where is it going to be the worst? Yeah. Where resources going to be needed, right? You start to think about sort of resource allocation. It's being used by a combination of companies around the world that want to sort of think about donations for fertilizer. So you just plan for it, you know? It just, it can either feel like all-out chaos or it can feel like planning. Um, and it's actually been amazing to sort of watch because we only launched um, this tool this summer and, and it's obviously the problem has gone sort of much worse, but it's it's been really powerful to see, you know, really critical institutions relying on it and using it. We're going to take another short break, but we'll have more from Grow Intelligence CEO and founder Sarah Manker in just a moment. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This Lab. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Coriant has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to How I Built This Lab. I'm Guy Raz, and my guest is Sarah Manker, founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. Um, Sarah, you you grew up in Ethiopia at a time when, I mean, you've talked about this, when there were images around the world of Ethiopian, you know, children in rural parts of the country dying of famine. You, you of course, did not experience that living in the capital, but um, that was something that sort of was was a, it was a clear image of that, right? Where we are today, right, what you're talking about, it seems like a perfect storm that could result in a version of that in parts of the world, right? Lack of fertilizer, obviously climate disruption, the Ukraine war, which is disrupting grain supplies, and then just supply chain challenges. 
that are you know that make it challenging to move things around the world. Are we are we looking at the possibility of of you know significant famine in parts of the world in the next year? Absolutely. So. If you look at the price changes in local currency since the start of 2020 for major foods, so if you just look at core grains and sort of your vegetable oils, like the basics, right? Like we're not looking at the fancy stuff. Um, Like meat, as far as I'm concerned, is a luxury, you know? Uh, So the basics. If you look at the basket of basic food products around the world since the start of 2020, the price of a basket of basic products in Sudan is up 1,900%. In Syria, it's up 700%. In Ethiopia, it's up wow. 175%. In Argentina, it's up 300%. Even in the US, it's up 67%. Europe, 80%. No part of the world is immune right now. And what's going to come down to is which economies have the resilience, which governments have the balance sheets to be able to deal with this kind of need right? And how you deal with it is going to be different. So my sort of concern is that this is so widespread and every country is busy fighting its own fire, right? That that it actually becomes so overwhelming to think about collective action hmm. because every country is sort of focused on its own. But we've got to do something. It's just really hard. And, and we've been spending a lot of time bringing as much attention as possible to the problem for that reason. Sarah, let me ask you about about the business side of what you do. Um, how did you, you know, when you were setting setting up your your organization, um, how did you begin to to gather team? How did you how did you find people to work with you and to help you build this? Yeah, so you know, I always say I'm the least qualified ex until I find the best qualified person to do that job, right? Which is what it is like being an entrepreneur and starting a company from scratch, which is you're completely not prepared. You have no clue. You just have an idea, and then you have to make it work. Um, and so the first person I brought on, who's um, is our COO and and um, my co-founder, Sweet, and. You know, she was a person that came from private equity um, and finance, and I had known her for a long time from New York, but she'd moved to Kenya. And she was just somebody I just trusted, you know, like that was it. And she's really smart and, you know, we'd have to raise capital and she's been on sort of the investing side, not on the the operational side. And so I asked her to leave her cushy private equity job and and go on this wild ride with me. And I was lucky she agreed. (laughs) So that was step one. And then with every other team member, it was sort of... And this was the benefit, I think, of taking time to sort of kick things off was Hmm. as you're learning, as I, you know, I spent those two years from 2012 to 14, like I did so many crop tours around the world. I mean, I've done crop tours in the U.S. and South America and Malaysia and China. I mean, I, I traveled the world and I learned just the agricultural industry inside out. And in that process... I was like, wait, I need geospatial scientists because like there's all the satellite data and I know nothing about satellite data. Morgan Stanley, I had a meteorologist that told me stuff and I traded off of it, you know? Um, and so it was always just finding the people who are the domain experts. So before actually thinking of the technologists, we thought about the domain experts. Who are people who know agriculture? We need agronomists. We need people who traded agricultural markets. We need climate scientists. Like yeah. we've really constructed the team with, I would say a lot of intention um, to make sure that the team represents sort of the world we're trying to model. 
Um, how does your how does your business model work? Obviously, there's I'm assuming there's a subscription side to it, so companies pay a fee every year to access this data? Correct. It's purely subscriptions. So um, we have different types of subscriptions people can buy. Um, so one of the things that's always mattered to us is sort of being able to serve really small companies as much as we serve really big companies. Um, we work with financial institutions, again, some of the smallest and some of the world's biggest Um Governments, governments who can't afford to pay as much and, and those that can. Um, and so we've developed a really flexible business model that has allowed us to essentially scale up as organizations are, are bigger, but also start small. But everything is subscription-based. And, and what we've developed is a is what we call our application store. So think of it as no different from the app store on your iPhone, where you go in and the app store is built on our platform that has all these models that I mentioned, like when you have 2 million models, it's too overwhelming for one person to make use of them. So each application has a very specific use case and a very specific set of targeted sort of customers. And so there's a library of applications that people choose from and say, I want to buy this application. And one application can be $10,000 per seed. Another one can be 15. Another one's 50. Um, depends on the use case and then depends number of seats um, or whether it's an enterprise license or not. And, and so we've been able to sort of build out this, this licensing model, but, but one that sort of is relatively um, inclusive. How are you able to differentiate your data from what governments provide? Because there are government organizations that provide this information and, and it's available for, for, for industry. Correct. Um, so first of all, if you think about governments that report the sort of most extensive is the U.S. government, the USDA, namely. Everything else is just tiny, tiny, tiny order of magnitude of what the USDA does. So to give you some perspective, even in the U.S., our models are predictive and accurate four to six months in advance of when the USDA comes out with its numbers um, within like 98 to 99% accuracy. In places like India and in places like Russia and places like China and places like Africa, our lead time for sort of our insights is one to two years at times. So yes, governments report, but they oftentimes report way too late. And they're also not reporting the level of depth that we report. So a lot of countries will report at the national level. We actually go down to the district level. A lot of governments won't tell you where the crops are grown. We have our own algorithms that looks at imagery to actually identify which fields are growing what crop, because that's how you can then determine how many acres are growing and then use that acreage to determine the yield and all the stuff. So we really have harnessed you know, the depth of knowledge of actually public data sets, because that is necessary. Again, you need to train your models on something. You need a baseline. You need to compare it to something. Uh, but what we offer is fundamentally different, which is why we work with the public sector as well. How did you kind of develop the technology platform? Um, I mean, you're obviously super smart and come with incredible experience around commodities, but was there a steep learning curve for you to figure out the, the technology side of it? It's a steep learning curve on every single one of it because I was yeah. not a qualified agronomist. I'm not a qualified fertilizer trader. I'm not, you know, I was only a qualified energy trader. Like that was my qualification. Yeah. Um, not a qualified CEO, right? Um, building a team is so different than 
than than trading a book. You know, everything was a steep learning curve for me. But one thing that I think has always driven me is that I love this work, right? Like I really, really, really believe in the work that we're doing. And so that just has made me completely relentless in learning anything and everything required at that point in time to make sure that we're successful and that that I'm sort of doing right by the team and that I'm doing right by our investors, by the business, every, you know, just, it matters a lot to me. So I think I already had a deeply sort of technical mind in the sense that, you know, I was always technical even growing up. And even at Morgan Stanley, I you know, built my own options trading models and, 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 and built out sort of these things, but it was always by teaching myself. And so I'm not sort of afraid to not know. I'm never afraid to like call people and say like, I need to learn and I need to learn from you. So in the early days, I literally used to like, for example, there was this, um, this scientist at USGS out in, um, in Colorado and USGS is a government agency that produces tons of, data around satellite imagery, but I just didn't even know what these things meant. I like emailed him and introduced myself. And I was like, do you mind like teaching me? And so he used to get on the phone and like for months, I used to just get lessons from him on how to learn and understand, interpret like, you know, satellite imagery. And so then when I was recruiting the first person, I even knew what questions to ask, you know, that's the whole thing. Like you can't empathize what you're looking for unless you yourself have experienced that one thing. So pretty much every role we've had in the company, whether it's technical, like our AWS account was set up by me. And I remember Googling, what is AWS? I didn't know what AWS Mm -hmm. was. Um, And sort of setting it up, right? I have been involved in data science. I've been involved in design, in marketing, in sales. Like every one of these roles I've played at some point. It doesn't mean I was the best. In fact, I'm not. (laughs) But I learned what it meant so that when we hire a team, that like I knew exactly what we were looking for. Um, I mean, as we're, you know, as we face a more volatile climate future, um, how how will, will the data that you provide allow businesses and farmers to mitigate some of the effects of climate change? In other words, can this data help people work around the climate challenges to continue to produce enough food? Oh, absolutely. So, um, One of the things that makes Grow really unique is that we had to ingest tons and tons of environmental, weather, climate data into the platform to use those as signals into sort of forecasting production, right? And in doing it, we realized this data on its own is still quite messy. Like temperature alone doesn't tell you whether you're in drought or not. Um, You know, uh, rainfall alone doesn't really tell you whether it's a flooding event or not. Um, You know, so there's all these components of sort of how weather translates into a climate impact itself that's really complex. And so what we did is we developed a suite of climate indices. Now, what these indices do is that they measure all of these different risks. So we have the grow drought index, the grow flood index, the tropical cyclone index, the fire index, heat index, et cetera. Um, What that means is that now you can look at real-time risks of all of these different perils for every product everywhere in the world in a consistent, defined way. But the next step that we took is we developed these forward-looking models that under different climate scenarios help you understand what the trajectory is 
of exactly these climate events for every crop everywhere around the world. Now, how does this translate to mitigating risk um, that you mentioned? Well, one of the applications that we have is called the land suitability application. So if you're a major um, food or ag company, think about sort of one of your biggest risks is not just procuring for today, but if you're building a new facility, where do you invest? Are the areas that grow coffee today going to be the areas that are most suitable for growing tomorrow? And where will they be most suitable five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now? And you'll be surprised at how much land area is going to have to shift based on these sort of different climate scenarios. That's Sarah Manker, founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to How I Built This Lab. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you always have the latest episode downloaded. If you want to follow us on Twitter, our account is at How I Built This, and mine is at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, I'm at Guy.Raz. If you want to contact the team, our email address is hibt at id.wondery.com. This episode was produced by Chris Massini with editing by John Isabella. Our audio engineer was Maggie Luthar. Our music was composed by Ramtin Arablui. Our production team at How I Built This includes Alex Chung, Carla Estevez, Casey Herman, J.C. Howard, Liz Metzger, Sam Paulson, Carrie Thompson, and Elaine Coates. Our intern is Susanna Brown. Neva Grant is our supervising editor. Beth Donovan is our executive producer. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. If you like How I Built This, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.